ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well, and I hope everyone is getting into the Halloween spirit. We are in the heart of the Halloween season now. It's gotten a little bit cooler. Uh, We're having kind of a bizarrely mild fall. I'm not complaining about that, but the weather has been absolutely gorgeous up here. Leaves are starting to change. It looks like Halloween. It doesn't really feel like Halloween because of the mild fall, but it certainly looks it. You drive around neighborhoods and you'll see people that have all these big displays out in their front yard. Boy, that was a big truck that just drove past. We don't do a lot of decorating for Halloween on the outside. We do have stuff that we put out inside the house, but we don't have the big inflatables out in the yard and the skeletons and witches that we set up. Drove past a house in a little town called Nanacoke, just down the road from us. And this was a small house. It was one of those little Cape Cods. And they had these two giant, they weren't inflatable, they looked like plastic. But they were these two giant skeletons that were about 12 feet tall in their front yard. I'm just thinking, where that's a little house. Where do you store that through the year? But we've never done a lot of decorating outside the house. Even at Christmas, we don't do much. You know, it, when you put that stuff up after Thanksgiving, the weather's usually pretty nice. But when you're taking that crap down after New Year's Eve, you know, it might be 40 degrees when you're out there trying to do that. It might be 15 and snowing. You don't know. And particularly up here, a lot of people leave their Christmas decorations up until January 17th, which is the end of the Orthodox Christmas season. And up here in the middle of January, you might be out there trying to take that crap down and it'd be below zero. It's pretty easy to put that stuff up when it's 50 in November. But when you're out there and it's that cold, that just turns that into a miserable chore. And, you know, my hat's off to people that if they want to do that, you know, knock yourself out. I think that's insane. Yes, it looks nice, and I like driving around and seeing it, but I'm not getting my butt out there in 10-degree wind-howling weather and try to take lights down off the gutters. But Christmas decorations are a little bit off the topic today. Um, Today, I thought we would talk about the poster child for Halloween, the movie monster that everybody just immediately thinks of when you think of Halloween and scary movies, and that is the vampire. Uh, vampires are so ubiquitous in our culture that they have really broken free from Halloween, and you might have vampire movies coming out in the spring or in the summer. You know, there's countless TV shows. Uh, actually, there's I actually did some uh, looked up some stats. Uh, There are over 80 TV shows that were either specifically about vampires or had a vampire as one of the major characters. Uh, There's about 200 movies. Uh, 196 is the number I kept finding. That actually shocked me. I would not have guessed that it's that low. It seems like you know through the whole span of the movie industry in all these different countries, it seems like it should be close to 1,000 movies about vampires. But like I say, I did do some checking on that, and 196 is the number that I kept seeing over and over. I don't know if that's excluding foreign films, but the number I kept seeing is 196, and that actually surprised me. I did not bother to look up how many novels and short stories and poems and comic books, because Lord knows how many of those there have been. But the vampire is a staple of our culture. It's not just at Halloween. Vampires have carved their own special niche out in our cultural consciousness to the point that it's kind of hard to imagine them not being a part of our lives. But they had to come from somewhere. There had to be an origin for them. And I thought today we could take a look and see how what we view as a vampire came to be through mythology and folklore. 
the precursors to modern-day vampires actually go back to ancient civilizations. Uh, the Mesopotamians, the Manipuri, which I had heard that word, but I didn't know anything about. Um, I looked it up. The Manipuri was an ancient civilization in northern India. Uh, the Hebrews, the Romans, and the Greeks all had sort of vampire-like figures in their mythology. Uh, these were not what we would consider vampires. Obviously, they're the precursors. But these were demons or evil spirits. They were not undead corpses. And they would sneak into people's houses, uh, feed off the life essence of the people living there, cause mischief, uh, sometimes cause deaths. Uh, but again, these were just the precursors. Like I say, they were not undead creatures. They did not feed off the blood of the living. But this is sort of the basis for where most historians are agreeing that that is sort of the genesis of the vampire figure in folklore. We did not see these vampire-like creatures begin to evolve into formerly living humans until the Middle Ages, and it comes mostly from Southern Europe. Uh, now, Russia did have something very similar in their folklore, uh, but it was mainly Southern Europe that you were starting to see these stories of these creatures come out. Uh, the Greek had something that they called the Virkolakis. I probably mispronounced that. Uh, Albania had something they called the Striga, and in Romania, they had something that they called the Strigoi. Now, what these creatures were were reanimated corpses that would come out of their graves at night. Now, generally, they would they weren't just going on a rampage. They would go back to their neighborhood or their family's home. This is where we started to see the belief that they fed on blood, uh, but they were described as bloated, sort of ruddy complexion, uh, the elongated teeth, elongated fingernails, and they were usually described as wearing their death shrouds, which obviously if you come out of the grave, if you went in there wearing just a shroud, that's what you're going to be wearing when you come out. Historians seem to agree that a lot of this stuff came from two places. Number one, there were a lot of plagues and disease going around Europe at that time. Of course, a lot of people were dying, but the people also did not understand germs and how viruses were passed. And of course, they're very superstitious people, and they did not understand the decomposition process. Now, there is no consensus on exactly how our ancestors went from having plagues and diseases to deciding that it may be the corpses of their loved ones that are doing this, but what a lot of historians seem to lean toward is you would have a family member pass away, and then about six months later, you would start to have a lot of disease in the house. People would start getting sick, probably dying, and at some point, our very superstitious, ignorant ancestors decided that, hey, maybe grandma is coming out of her grave at night and preying on the family. So you started to see a lot of disinterments. People would check on the corpses of people that had passed away within the last year or so. Decomposition can take much longer than you'd expect, even, even in this time when there was no embalming. A lot of people don't think about it. A well-made casket, it's certainly not going to be 100% airtight, but if a casket is well-made, it's going to seal up pretty good. It's not something you could go into space in, obviously. But between being inside that casket and then covered up with dirt, that is a sealed environment. The microbes that drive most of decomposition, they need oxygen, and they're going to use it up pretty quickly in that small space. So a lot of times they were digging these corpses up. Also, the type of soil, you know, if it's a very clay-like soil, that's going to really, I mean, it's going to be like you're entombed in a 
concrete box at that point. But the soil can affect the decomposition too. Plus it's cool. If you get six feet down in the ground, it's very cool. It's almost like a refrigerator. But you had people that were digging up corpses that had been in the ground for nine months and they open up and the corpse seems pretty much intact. It's bloated. Uh, the blood sitting in the skin will cause it to turn red or purple. The skin, as it loses moisture, will pull away from the hair. The gums pull away from the teeth. Flesh pulls away from the fingernails. It makes it look like the fingernails and the teeth and the hair are still growing. Which, if you'll notice the description of the Strigoi and the Striga, it's a bloated, sort of a purple complexion. Uh, long teeth and claws, exactly what you would see in a body that had entered the first stages of decomposition, but then that got slowed down through various reasons. Uh, another thing that they would notice is that as gas built up in the body itself, it would force blood out of the mouth and out of the eyes. And so you'd open up this coffin, and here's a corpse with fresh blood on its lips. So they think, oh my God, it's it's coming out. It's feeding on blood. It's kind of insulting to our ancestors that we believe that they were that hysterical and that stupid. I, I mean, I'm I'm sure that they probably were, but it just seems like, you know, how how did we ever invent a car if we can believe this kind of garbage? I mean, I obviously I wasn't there. I, I'm sure it was a very strange, confusing, scary world that they lived in because they didn't understand how hardly anything actually worked. But it just, that seems like such a, I mean, why was, how did they explain to themselves that the dirt over the grave was not disturbed? If the corpse is coming out of the coffin, wouldn't it look like somebody had tunneled up out of the ground there? I mean, I get that they're looking for an explanation for all these things that they have no idea what's going on. And it's at a time where people are dropping dead left and right. But it seems like a little bit of critical thinking. There are some places where that story definitely falls apart. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. But this is where we see one of the things that I always found kind of odd about vampires. Um, you know, the stake through the heart. Why would a wooden stake through the heart kill them? You, know, you can shoot them. You can stab them with a sword. You can set them on fire. And it doesn't bother them a bit. But just a wooden stake through the heart. Why would that kill a vampire? Uh, that actually comes from this particular point in European history. Because as all this was going on, as all people were trying to figure out what's happening and they started to blame reanimated corpses, there's a very interesting practice that came into fashion. And that is that after you put your loved one in the coffin and you lower them into the grave, before you would cover up the hole, you would take a eight or ten foot sharpened pole. Uh, you know, we call it, we say a stake now, but these were actual like long shafts of wood that they would sharpen on one end, and they would drive that through the coffin, through the body, and about seven or eight feet down into the ground. The thinking was that that did not kill the vampire. They were not doing that to kill the vampire. They were literally nailing grandpa to the ground in his grave. The stake was not to keep or not to kill the corpse. The stake was to make it impossible for the corpse to get the lid of the coffin open and climb out of the grave. Like I say, they were literally nailing their loved ones to the ground, which answers something that always bugged me about the vampires. The stake through the heart always seemed like such an oddly specific weakness to have. Because, I mean, what technically that means that you could kill a vampire from a hundred yards away by shooting him with an arrow. That's wood. It's a stake. If you put it in his heart, wouldn't just shooting him with an arrow kill him really quickly and easily and end all the movies in about 10 minutes? 
But there are some other things about vampire folklore that I actually found some answers for that never really made sense either. Uh, the not reflecting in a mirror. I always, because if I go into a funeral home and I hold a mirror up in front of one of the dearly departed, that body is going to be visible in the mirror. Why would a vampire not have a reflection? There's actually an interesting reason for that. In the Middle Ages, again, we're dealing with very superstitious people, but silver was considered very pure. Uh, pure to the point that it was used in a lot of religious ceremonies. Uh, it was said that any sort of evil being could not come in contact with silver. They, they really hated silver. It was a symbol of purity, of goodness. The way mirrors were made in the Middle Ages is that they would coat the back of the glass with silver. That's what gave it its reflective properties. So it was believed that because silver is so pure and evil spirits can't have anything to do with any kind of silver, that a silvered mirror, a vampire would not cast a reflection because it was an unholy being and the silver would reject it, basically. But that's why we always say that vampires don't have a reflection in a mirror. And there's one more quick thing I want to talk about. Some of the strange things about the vampire myths is the garlic. Why would garlic repel vampires? I didn't find a real clear answer on this. Uh, garlic was sort of held in high esteem all through the ancient times. Uh, garlic is actually antibacterial. Now, there is some connection to vampires in that in a lot of these folklore myths, it's sort of a taint in the blood that causes the corpses to reanimate and come back to haunt the living. And actually, garlic, if consumed properly, can cure some blood-borne illnesses. So it was always used for medicinal purposes, religious ceremonies. It could be that these vampires have a heightened sense of smell, so they're repulsed by the very strong odor. It could just be that they believe that the healing and holy properties of garlic would repel them. I think the best explanation for the garlic is... Who the hell knows why they believed that? None of this stuff really makes sense when you think about it. So garlic's as good as anything else. Why not? But I really couldn't find a consensus on that. It's just part of the folklore, part of the myth. So we've reached medieval Europe. We're closer to what we consider a vampire. We're not there yet. Uh, they don't have fangs, as we would think of a vampire having. The sun does not destroy them. Uh, they just avoid sunlight for whatever reason, but it's not. That's more, to me, that's more they were afraid of the dark. And we don't think much about nighttime, but we have lights and headlights on our cars and flashlights that can light up an entire side of a building like it's midday. Try to imagine what it was like in the medieval period. I mean, just Think about if you're if the electricity goes off at your house in the night, spend a couple hours in your house with it completely dark and tell me that it does not take on a different feel. Or you know, if you've got a basement, just go down in the basement with all the lights off and just stand there. You're going to hear odd things. It's going to feel creepy after a little while, even though you're in your house and, you know, you can flip a light switch and turn the lights on at any moment. Imagine not being able to do that. That when it got dark, it was just dark and you had to deal with it. So I feel like the reason that these reanimated corpses would always come at night is because they were afraid of the nighttime. They didn't know what was out there. Um, but the sunlight did not affect the vampires at that time. That came a little bit later. The modern interpretation of the vampire, as we would think of it, began in the 18th and 19th century. Now, we have got works of fiction about vampires as early as the mid-1500s. 
Uh, but the two most influential books about vampires, uh, one of them you absolutely know was a 19, or I'm sorry, 1897's Dracula by Bram Stoker. Uh, but there was another one in 1872, a story about a female vampire. It was called Carmilla. Uh, it's written by an Irishman named Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. Basically, this is the beginning of what we would consider the modern vampire. It was a very uh, beautiful woman. Uh, she was tormenting another young woman in her in her town or village. Uh, but this is where we start to see sort of the attractive predator vampire come along, you know, not these bloated, shambling corpses. But most of what we think of as a vampire comes from uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the very handsome, debonair, well-dressed, sophisticated monster that's actually hunting victims rather than just coming out and causing mayhem which does make for a more intriguing protagonist in these stories. You know, whenever you hear people talk about serial killers, they're always saying, well, you know, he seemed normal. He was a nice looking guy. Well, of course, if he looked like a deranged nut job, nobody would get in his car. That's how you become a serial killer, by being able to entice your victims to come to you. But this gives the vampire an image more in line of what we expect to see, the very cunning attractive predator. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula also gave us the fangs, which I believe Bram Stoker added in there to give him a more predacious look. You know, predators in the wild have canine, long canine teeth, so I think he gave Dracula long canine teeth to make him seem more of a predator. The novel Dracula is also where we get the belief that vampires can change into wolves and bats. That's the first time that appeared into the mythology. The very first film about vampires um, was not about Dracula directly, although it did borrow very heavily from the novel. It was a German film made in 1990, or 1922 uh, named Nosferatu. And Nosferatu is a Romanian word for undead. Now, as I said, they were borrowing very heavily from the novel, but they could not get permission from Bram Stoker's widow to use the actual book as a basis for their movie. They pretty much ripped it off, though. Uh, the story is very similar. Uh, instead of Count Dracula, the main character is named Count Orlock, and he is moving from his ancestral home into London, and he's dealing with a real estate agent. Basically the same storyline as Dracula. Now, Count Orlock in Nosferatu did not look very debonair. He was not handsome. He looked like a monster. The man that played him was an extremely gaunt man, uh, very bug-eyed. Uh, they used prosthetics to make his fingers look much unnaturally long. Uh, he had elongated teeth, but not fangs. Uh, but this is the movie that introduced, uh, if he was to get into sunlight, it would destroy him. That is how he dies at the end of the movie. He gets caught in the sunlight and he turns to ash. Another difference between Count Dracula and Count Orlock is that when he would feed on humans, it would not turn them into another vampire. It would just be fatal to the victim. But that is one of the few places where they really deviated from the Count Dracula novel in that Count Orlock looked like a monster. He did not look like a handsome late middle-aged man, he he looked like an undead creature. He did not look natural at all. The producer of the movie, a man named F.W. Marnoux, uh, was actually sued by Bram Stoker's widow for copyright infringement after the movie was produced, but right before it was to be released. Marnoux 
knew that he was going to lose this lawsuit. He because he basically just stolen the story, pretty much word for word from the novel. His response to the lawsuit was that he immediately filed for bankruptcy. So there was not going to be any way for Bram Stoker's widow to get a financial payment out of this. Bram Stoker's widow then countered this by demanding that a judge order that all the copies of the movie be destroyed. The judge actually agreed to this and ordered that the films be collected and burned. The reason that we have this movie and we can still see it is because copies had already been sent out. The movie had not released yet, but it was in the final stages of that. Several copies were sent to America. The copies that made it to America did not fall under the judge's order to be collected and destroyed because Bram Stoker never applied for uh, copyright protection in America. So when the movies got to American soil, that character is what's called, uh, was in the public domain, which means that nobody has the rights to it. Anybody can use that character in, in a work of fiction if they so choose. So the copies of the movie that made it to U.S. soil were legal to distribute, and that is the only reason that we still have this movie and can watch it today. All the copies that were in Europe were collected and destroyed, and if and I think it was like five reels of the film that made it over here. Uh, except for that, that movie would have been lost to history. Now, another interesting thing about this movie's production, uh, F.W. Marnu and a couple of the other executives that were producing this film and had this company were students of Aleister Crowley. And this movie, and they had actually planned a couple more, were meant to be sort of propaganda for the occult teachings of Aleister Crowley, and were going to try to bring his teachings more into the mainstream, and they were trying to attract more people to his teachings. So who knows what else they would have produced if this lawsuit hadn't forced them to file for bankruptcy. It, I'd be curious to see what they had planned next. I have actually watched this movie. Uh, it was years ago. I don't remember much about it. I uh, remember enjoying it, but not thinking it's great. But movies from the past, the, you know, the audience members expected such a different story, and the storytelling was so different that it's kind of hard to get into a lot of these old movies. Uh, but it was interesting. I, I would recommend it if you can find it anyway. And in October is going to be your best chance to find this. But if you get a chance, you check it out. Like I say, I did enjoy it. I don't remember much about it. It is a silent film, so that takes some getting used to. Uh, but give it a watch. It's it's interesting. Now, like I say, that is a soft recommendation. You're certainly not going to be missing anything grand if you don't watch a 100-year-old silent film. But my actual Halloween vampire movie recommendation for this year is a movie called What We Do in the Shadows. Now, there's a series that spun off of that on FX right now that you may remember seeing or, or seeing commercials for. Uh, but the movie that's based on is sort of shot in a mockumentary style, meaning it's like there's a camera crew following these individuals around. But it's about a group of four vampires living in Hungary in modern times. It's a very funny movie, very well acted. I definitely recommend it. And I mean, like legitimately laugh out loud moments in this movie. It's very good. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's obviously it's a comedy. There's you know a little bit of cartoonish violence in it, uh, but no nudity, very little cursing. If you have younger children, I definitely recommend watching it. 
All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, this is stuff that I find fascinating, but I'm not sure if anybody else in the world gives a damn about. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please leave me a like, comment, and subscribe. And as always, you can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or on the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, enjoy your work week. I will talk to you again on Friday. Um, I think I'm going to do Friday's episode about Aleister Crowley. I've heard that name my whole life. I know absolutely nothing about him. So I think for Friday, we're going to take a deep dive on who Aleister Crowley was and why is he always brought up anytime you want to make things seem sort of mystical and dealing with the occult. But that's what we're going to take a look at on Friday. Um, Until then, enjoy your week, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much.